Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick Posick, Assistant Director for the Parker School of Foreign and Comparative Law at Columbia University, and a host on this channel. Today, I'm joined by Chris Fenton, author of Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the MBA, and American Business, published this year by Post Hill Press. In Feeding the Dragon, Chris shares his journey from waiting tables at the Olive Garden to producing blockbuster movies in Hollywood. But the unique angle that Chris offers is his experience bringing U.S. films to audiences in China. And his work goes far beyond opening the Chinese market to another U.S. export. Instead, he serves a key diplomatic function, using culture and commerce to bridge the gap between the two countries. It's a practice he calls film diplomacy. Chris Fenton, welcome to New Books in Law. I'm thrilled that you can join me. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Honored and humbled. (laughs) Today we're discussing your new book, Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business from Post Hill Press. Uh, I enjoy the book immensely. It does a lot. It's an introduction to doing business in China. Um, It's a professional memoir, (laughs) but it's also a page turner. It's uh, punctuated by these succinct chapters. and it also captures the colorful language of the entertainment industry, giving a lot of texture. Uh, so my question for you, my first question is, why write this book? Why now? Well, it's funny. I, if, you, if you look at what's happening currently, even this week, um, with the Milan controversy and, and, and Disney, or a couple of weeks ago with Activision, or Senators Hawley and Rubio and Scott and everybody else talking about the U.S.-China dynamic and how things need to change, um, you'd think it was some sort of premeditated strategy to have a book come out right now about this subject. But the, the fact was, I had spent 20 years in the U.S.-China exchange of culture and commerce. And during that time, it was about as chaotic and colorful as sort of any real life journey would get. And when you're living it, you don't really notice it per se in regards to being a story. But um, over time, I began, began to, you know, it was noticed as some sort of a I guess, an expert in the applied practical space of, of working between the two superpowers. So I would do panels or various interviews and I would tell anecdotes and whoever I was talking to or the audience that was watching would be like, oh my God, that's a great story. You should write a book or you should do a movie about it or whatever it was. So over time that, that, that influenced me to sort of make sure I was taking notes and and you know, and thinking about if I did uh, approach a book about this subject, how would I do it? And how would I tackle it in a way that would get the most interest from the broadest reach of readers? So the idea to me, being a huge Michael Lewis fan and Ben Meserich and, and various others that, that write sort of really good non-fictional tales and these fantastic story narratives, was to, to try to do it like they do and, and make something really engaging and entertaining and, and true to life um, that also 
teaches some valuable lessons along the way. So it was a tough needle to thread, but I knew I had the main characters that made sense. I knew I had the anecdotes. Um, the first draft was probably 800 pages. Um, I had to whittle it down to 300. So I knew I had plenty of fodder there. And one of the best things that happened once the first reads, the first previews were occurring was I had experts, um, for instance, like Stanley Rosen, who's one of the predominant experts in the cultural exchange between the US and China. And he is at USC and he has my book on his curriculum for some of his classes. He read it and he loved it. And he thought I nailed the expert areas well enough for him to really enjoy it and want to put it on his classroom readings. But then he also said it was just an entertaining read. And people that aren't interested in China per se, or even in Hollywood or in the NBA or sports have done the same. They've read it and they've been thoroughly entertained and they've come away with some very interesting lessons. And and that was the goal I wanted to hit. So right now I'm pretty excited about it. Although I have read some reviews where people have called me a treasonist and I should go to jail for the rest of my life too. (laughs) (laughs) That's a wide ranging audience right there. (laughs) Yes. So in the process of building this book and creating this book and bringing together this abundance of materials, did it change your thinking at all about U.S.-China relations? Did um, did looking back at um, your accomplishments in this area, did it... Did you gain a new perspective or garner new insights out of it? What did you really learn from putting this book together? Well, that's a fantastic question because, quite frankly, as I was writing the majority of it or putting it together, my goal was just to write something that showcased the U.S.-China relationship, how things worked between it, the color, the chaos, the insanity of getting just jobs done and the players involved and the different scrutiny we were getting from antagonists all around, you know, from the leaders of both countries, to regulators, to critics, to journalists, et cetera. Um, and, and I felt like that was enough to make just a great book. And that was it. And then the idea was to make it timeless. So I picked a period where I sort of started my Jerry Maguire adventure, which was after getting fired from the William Morris agency and falling into the China business. There was no premeditated play with China. It just sort of happened to me in life. And and I went with it mainly because I didn't have any other options at the time. Um, and then the idea was to crescendo it into the ultimate ending of a third act. So I decided to end it in middle 2013 with the opening of Iron Man 3, which was broke every market uh, statistic there was when when we released that movie. And then I was going to rope in sort of a, a final postscript with a U.S. congressional delegation trip that I co-hosted as a trustee of the U.S. Asian Institute last um, August, September, where we brought three congressional members over and we met with Carrie Lam and and Hong Kong protesters, and then we went through um, Beijing and and met with the CCP and and national uh, the uh, the NPC and various other entities, and sort of cap off. Hey, I told you this sort of timely, you know, this timeless tale of of commerce and cultural exchange between the two superpowers, and here's where we are today, coming out of this you know, delegation trip. And then it would be the end. Um, 
But what happened after that trip changed everything. And you asked what changed the way I thought about the relationship. And it really came down to a Daryl Morey tweet, who I didn't know who that was, but I saw a tweet from a GM of the Houston Rockets uh, in early October of last year um, in support of the Hong Kong Hong Kong protesters. And I was sitting on the sidelines of a soccer game that my 13-year-old was playing in. And I said to a dad standing next to me, I said, wow, the NBA is going to have a huge problem in China. I look at this tweet. And he said, well, why is that? And I said, well, I don't know who this Daryl Morey guy is, but he works for the Houston Rockets and they're a huge branded team in that market. And the NBA has to be super quiet about different issues of sensitivity and and he's not. And um, I was 100% right. But what shocked me, what absolutely shocked me, and it's even more shocking today to know that it shocked me because I should have seen it, um, was how woke the American public became from the reaction that the NBA had after that tweet. The fact that the NBA called it a third rail issue, which is what Josiah, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, called Hong Kong. It was something you shouldn't talk about. Um, how you know Adam Silver and LeBron James sort of fumbled the way they reacted and how they changed course and how the very different you know, sort of outspoken critics of various other causes suddenly went quiet. That was really an amazing moment for me to see. And it woke me up to the fact that, oh my God, what the NBA is getting criticized of right now is what I was a part of in terms of Hollywood and the NBA, um, as I talk about in the book, um, in the earlier parts of the book, but Hollywood in general. Like I was complicit in what everybody thought the NBA was too. And that's what really changed the way I thought about this. Hmm. You mentioned um, Iron Man 3, which is the premiere of Iron Man 3 actually it was the very start of your book, right? It, it opens with a premiere and you setting the stage of Iron Man 3 and it's um, the premiere being in China, of course. And you describe this really spectacular event. Uh, this is obviously very important and I'd love for our listeners to get a sense of why this is just such a milestone. Well, there were a lot of crazy sort of firsts about Iron Man 3. Um, and to get to that moment, um, we do we have this cold open in the book because I come from the movie business, so I wanted to have this really sort of high adrenaline action sequence that gets everybody on the seat, you know, the edge of their seat as they're reading this book. And then, of course, I get you know, I roll backwards after that into sort of a, a little bit of a history lesson of U.S.-China relationship and how I got into China and all that kind of stuff, but. The, to get to Iron Man 3 took lots of different case studies, a lot of step-by-step -step, um, small projects to get to that huge project. And that huge project was one of the biggest movies of, of the last few years at that time, budget-wise. Um, huge stakes for Disney, which um, owned Marvel only uh, recently before we got involved with Iron Man 3. And this emergence of this market that suddenly was starting to look like quicker than anybody expected would become the largest movie market in the world. So the idea was, um, and I walked through it in various case studies, uh, when Hollywood approached China, it was literally like, just make whatever movie you're going to make. And then when it's done, go send it over to the Chinese authorities and say, hey, let it in. We want to monetize your market. Um, in 1997, 
that approach bit Hollywood in the ass pretty hard because they had made Seven Years in Tibet and Kundun and various other controversial films when it came to the way CCP in China looks at Hollywood movie making. Um, those studios went backwards quite a bit in regards to their ability to get into that market. And that market didn't mean much back then, but it left an impression on the studios that when the market does mean something, we got to be really careful. So ever since 1997, the idea was just make movies that involve China influence none whatsoever, but are just sensitive to things that they're sensitive about, whether it's Tibet or Taiwan or um, you know, Hong Kong issues or various other things, Tiananmen Square for sure. So they avoided that, but they would still just make the movies they wanted to make. They'd submit them and they'd get in or they wouldn't get in. And then over time, um, players like us got involved where we would look at these movies, for instance, the Twilight movies that involved just a film that they went and shot based on a book that it could be a huge franchise and it did. And they and the studio would say to us, hey, China's not letting it in. And we would go, well, that's because there's undead creatures in it. There's things that are censored. Vampires are not allowed, et cetera. So that's why you're not getting access. And the studio would say, well, can you figure out a way for us to get access? And we'd be like, well, in the first place, you probably shouldn't make movies like this if you expect them to get into China. But now since it's made, let's figure out a marketing strategy to get the CCP on board. In regards to Twilight, we pitched it not as a vampire movie, but as a movie of forbidden love that was much like their beloved other Hollywood movie of, of yesteryear, which was Titanic. So we said, we're going to market to your populace this idea that this movie is akin to Titanic, akin to Romeo and Juliet. We're not going to use any of the vampire footage in the movie trailers, in the actual one sheets. And we're actually going to censor a lot of that stuff from the cut of the movie that showed in China. And the CCP said, you know what? You can have it in. So we would get it in. So that was one version of how we got involved in the movie business, which was, hey, we made this movie. It's sensitive. Can you still figure out how to get it in? The next layer on that, and this is leading into Iron Man 3, was how do we premeditatedly get involved with a movie so that they avoid censored issues and they actually incorporate China relevancy into the movie itself to give extra wind to the back. And that's um, a case study that I walked through pre, pre, before Iron Man 3, which was for the movie Looper, which was a Bruce Willis, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Emily Blunt movie that Ryan Johnson, who obviously now directs a lot of the Star Wars movies, directed. Once we were successful with that, then Iron Man 3. That was hey, we can go to Disney and Marvel and say, we want to use the same premeditated approach where we actually bring China relevancy into this movie, whether it's China infrastructure, um, film industry players, uh, resources, uh, marketing, development expertise, locations, different characters that are on screen that are Chinese. And that will allow us a sale to the CCP to allow, have the, to allow that movie access to their massive market, which at that time in 2013 was really gaining steam. Sure. And beyond access to the market, you also talk about this uh, film diplomacy, right? Um, with culture being one of your five forces of diplomacy, along with politics, national security, human rights, 
you, you have culture and commerce. What are your responsibilities in the entertainment industry towards a larger diplomacy, towards really fortifying U.S.-China relations? Yeah, well, one of the things that we, we did with Iron Man 3, and uh, I'll bring it back to that premiere in Tiananmen Square, is some of the stuff that we wanted to do in the movie because of movie making and the craziness that's involved in all the moving parts, we weren't able to do it. So one of the relevancy points that we brought into the film wasn't actually in the movie itself. It was activated around it. And that was bringing the largest, biggest movie star in the world, Robert Downey Jr., to China to promote the movie. But also, more importantly, to showcase the fact that he loves that country and wanted to be there, wanted to integrate himself with that market, with his fans, and be there to integrate himself with some of the largest stars in China in a televised national commercial, essentially. It was the movie premiere um, based on, it was a one hour uh, special that we aired multiple times nationally in, in China, where Robert Downey Jr. interacted with some of the biggest celebrities in China. And we did it in the most important part of China, which, as you know, China is about as wide as the United States of America, but there's one time zone. And what is that time zone? Well, it's whatever time it is in Beijing, right? You can be in the far west region of China and the sun comes up at 10 a.m. in the morning because at 10 a.m. in the morning, that's what time the sun is at its normal place in Beijing. And in the center of Beijing is the Forbidden City that's within the first ring road. So we shut down the Forbidden City in order to have this incredible first-of-its-kind Hollywood movie premiere. And that was extra relevancy we brought into it. And then Robert coming to China in the way that he did, interacting with the fans, doing things that were cultural. He would eat crazy foods. He would perform with all kinds of different artists on screen. Um, he would do all kinds of crazy interaction with the press in, in the red carpet, as we talked about in the book, that was that diplomatic um, sort of link to the U.S. that culture brought, right? It was this huge movie star in front of all these big CCP officials and various other bureaucrats coming as an emissary of, of the United States of America saying, we know how important your people are to our commerce and culture that we create in the United States of America. I am here to showcase that. And I am here to say, this is the beginning of a long relationship between the two superpowers. And during that time, when we were making that movie, 2012 was actually a very politically uh, filled minefield um, when it came to the geopolitics between the two countries. Because at that time, Japan and China were having big issues. In fact, um, they were fighting over islands in the in the South China Sea. Um, there were various um, instances of Molotov cocktails thrown at Toyota car dealerships, et cetera. And China and, and U.S. was getting pulled into that. So during that geopolitical tension, we were also making one of the biggest movies of all time together with the other superpower, and it actually created this really interesting sort of dynamic um, that allowed, uh, you know, this glue to be ongoing even during very difficult times. Do you think the recognition for this kind of work um, is on the U.S. side, right? Do you think U.S. audiences really understand how powerful 
exports like Iron Man 3, um, like Uber, like other films that enter the Chinese market are in shaping our perception in the world? I don't think it's, I don't think either populace is cognizant of it. It's sort of a, what I, what I sometimes refer to as a positive shrapnel. Like it just, it, it's just simply two countries trying to get the job done in regards to creating that content. And then it's two countries watching it separately um, and being engaged with the story and being entertained by it in different ways and in different ways they look at it. But it's bridging two cultures together in a way that only movies do. And I've been on Capitol Hill talking about the magic of what I call film diplomacy. Um, and if we cut to today, we're starting to see it be used against us in certain ways. I mean, we're starting to become cognizant of the way that the CCP is managing that creative process by Hollywood in terms of how they want stories told, in terms of how they want China portrayed, how they don't want Taiwan or Hong Kong portrayed or various other issues or entities. So it is a very powerful force. Um, you could argue even our CIA was possibly using certain um, cultural uh, parts of our fabric in winning over various uh, you know, countries in Africa in the 1950s as they were deciding between swaying towards the USSR or swaying towards the democracy of the West. Um, so culture is powerful, but I don't think the average individual thinks about that power or that influence. They just want to see a good story. Mm. So we have an upcoming presidential election. <laughs> uh, do you have any thoughts for how the winner of this election should look at the film industry as an asset for the U.S. interests? Well, right now, I'm a little concerned and a little disturbed by where we are in terms of Hollywood and how we're catering to the Chinese market. I am not a, a believer in decoupling whatsoever. Um, I am in the, I believe in the idea of completely resetting the bilateral relationship. And one way to do that is we need to start thinking more as patriots of the country before capitalists, um, because capitalism has really reigned supreme in regards to this globalist agenda that we've had in opening China and doing it at sort of whatever cost it took. Now, we need to step back and say, hey, a lot of that stuff, including all the stuff I was very complicit in, is now being used against us a bit. And we need to readdress how we engage China. We should open that market for our products and services, but we need to think about America first. And part of that is in how we're depicting um, our stories, our values, and our principles I'm okay in certain ways with censoring some of that inside the borders of China um, because we do that with Japan. We do that with Korea. We do that in Middle Eastern countries. It's become sort of a norm. And whether that's right or wrong, I mean, obviously it doesn't seem right, but it also at times seems like good capitalistic business. Where I really have a problem is when the encroachment of our freedom of speech, our First Amendment rights, 
comes outside of the Chinese border and is placed on us here in the United States of America to tell Paramount that they cannot have the Taiwanese or the Japanese flag on Tom Cruise's flight jacket in the new Top Gun movie is wrong. I could argue in the PRC, yeah, we can blur that out or we can do whatever it takes to make them happy there. It It's sort of that swallow your tongue type of capitalism, but it seems like something we might be able to live with. Where we can't live with it is when they're saying, the person in Argentina can't see that flight jacket the way it was. And the person in Indiana can't see it that way. And the person in Germany can't see it that way. That is wrong. And that's where our next president needs to look at this and say, there are various encroachments of freedom of speech rights, the First Amendment rights that the CCP is placing on us that they have been extending over a given amount of time. I mean, I look at this CCP in China sort of like a teenager that started with a given curfew, but it's just been pushing it back, pushing it back because the parents haven't pushed back on them. Now we need to push back on them. And we have the leverage able to do that. And I would argue that the government and our new president should look at this and say, we need to put parameters on what we're willing to deal with in regards to the values and principles of Americans in regards to our engagement with China. And a lot of that has been encroached upon. So we need to push back. But the only way we can push back is with the strength in, in numbers and with, with a unified approach to it. And for Hollywood, that means Paramount saying, hey, we're going to keep the flight jacket as is. But it also means that every studio needs to back them on that. It needs to be unified because China can easily retaliate against just Paramount. That China populace can live without Paramount movies. But can they live without all the movies coming out of Hollywood? Or will that create discontent among the populace that could lead someday to some sort of an uprising? And the CCP does not want that. So unity in regards to dealing with some of these encroachment issues is key. And what we've seen also outside of First Amendment rights is supply chain issues, offshoring of middle-class jobs, uh, cyber theft, IP theft, forced joint ventures, various other things that have created a very un unfair playing advantage for the Chinese in our trade relationship. Whoever is president needs to attack those things and address them in a strategic way. But the only way to do that is if everybody's playing by those same rules here in the United States and everybody backs them. So to answer your question, I am very nonpartisan in regards to my approach to this solving the problem, um, potential solution sort of shout outs that I make. Um, and I think we need to be that way as Americans on the whole, because to address the China relationship moving forward, it's got to be a red and blue working together. And then on top of it, we also have to play a long game. It can't be something that we're just thinking about six weeks ahead of every two-year or four-year election. It's got to be something where we're playing on the same playing field they do. And remember, they're on 25, 50, 75, 100-year plans. So we need to think the same way. And quite frankly, if we do it the right way, I think the bilateral relationship will lose a lot of that tension and a lot of that sort of pink elephant, white elephant sort of animosity that's going on. And we'll be much more cognizant of what 
is making each other more upset and how we address those. And it'll probably create a healthier environment down the road. But we got to get through some very disruptive things first. Sure. And you touched on a point that comes up in your book when you really, when you discuss the CCP and it's the idea of just happy enough, right? Keeping the citizens just happy enough. What does that mean? Well, look, it's it's part of my layman expertise on China because I I like what like I said, I fell into it and I have a practical applied experience. I'm not a PhD in Mandarin studies. I am not a think tank um, expert when it comes to China. So when I look at China and I look at sort of the most macro outside of the onion peel, I try to think of what the CCP's mandate is. And then you can sort of work below that if you're doing something more on the micro, like trying to find out what's an interesting plot point to put into a movie or what's an interesting thing to pitch to the CCP to allow them access for a product or service. And that goes to what's their biggest goal is to stay in power. And how do they stay in power? Well, you keep another Tiananmen Square from happening. Well, how do you do that? You keep people happy. But the problem is, is there one, there's 1.4 billion people in China. So if you make everybody happy, and that's sort of giving them all of what they want, you're going to make the earth Swiss cheese. There's just simply not enough resources on earth to, to accomplish that goal. So you want to make them just happy enough that they're content enough that they don't revolt. And that's giving them all of what they need and some of what they want, or at least the idea that if they keep working towards their individual goals and the goals of the group, they'll eventually get a lot more of what they want. And as long as that feels obtainable by the average person that's in China on a given day, they're going to be happy with their leadership. And that's the key. So if you look at that in a macro and then you say, well, how do we take Iron Man 3 and get them excited that we're accomplishing that macro goal, well, you say to them, well, bringing more people into the middle class obviously makes them happy. I mean, they brought 600 million in. What about the handful that you're doing skill exchanges with, with the best in class from Hollywood coming over to China and shooting movies and doing different sort of lessons of the day and, and helping them shadow you as you do key grip moves or electric moves or different DP moves or different cameraman work? That's going to bring people into the middle class. That's going to help build their film industry, right? And then that idea of putting their sort of Gene Hackman in the movie, this guy, Wong Kashi, that gives them great pride. It says, hey, if I work hard as an actor or I work hard in some other business, I can be incorporated into something that's considered global best in class. Like that gives me aspirations and inspiration, right? And the way we brought Robert Downey Jr. to China to showcase China as the mecca of where the movie business is going. Like that satisfies a pride objective that the populace sees on national television and feels good about, right? So those are all things that allow the CCP to stay in power. So we're satisfying that agenda to them. And what do they do in return? They give us a bigger cut of the box office. They give us a prime release date during a national holiday. They give us access to promote and market the movie way beyond any other premeditator early ability to do so for just a normal film. So we got all kinds of wind in the back because we satisfied that very macro outside the onion peel 
objective of the CCP. Right. And those aren't small concessions either. In the book, you talk a lot about just what it means to get the day and date or just what it means to have an opening at the beginning of a holiday, because you're competing with, you know, not other Hollywood films necessarily, but uh, foreign films internationally, and then also Chinese domestic products. Where do you situate uh, Hollywood relative to, you know, the growing Chinese film industry? That's you see that as competition. Well, it is competition now. I mean, at one at one point, the Hollywood movies would make up on a given week ninety cents of every dollar that was generated in that market. Um, over time, it's decreased to last year, roughly thirty-five cents of every dollar was a Hollywood blockbuster, and a lot of that was just one single movie, which was the last Avengers movie. So if you look at Hollywood's um, entree into that market, it came in as, you know, as a Goliath. And now it's a bit of a David and it needs to keep its status in there somehow. So it needs to think a little bit out of the box in regards to how to get the CCP to support it. Because if you look at the most outside part of the onion again. Um, I think the CCP in many ways would love to just become an internalized film industry where just their film industry caters to their people. That's the only sort of product that's there that they can watch because that allows the CCP full control over what that narrative is. And perhaps even those movies get to spread outside of their borders and do really well globally. Now, will that ever happen? No. Could it happen in regards to that internal goal? It might if Hollywood keeps losing market share. But Hollywood needs to think out of the box in regards to getting more access to that market or at least maintaining the access that it has. So I think you're going to see more strategic ways that they try to cater to what the CCP directive is, number one. But then number two is to avoid controversy that could cause a loss of face to the CCP. Like I talked about in Iron Man 3, there was a lot of controversy from the film community there that the CCP was giving too much favoritism to Iron Man 3 over local productions. And in fact, those local productions and the critics that were supporting those local productions were trying to find any sort of ingredient that we put into Iron Man 3 or around Iron Man 3 that gave us that wind to the back that could be criticized and even up until the day of that movie, it was very iffy whether we were going to have the release date that we wanted and ultimately had, because there were so many forces against us having that. So it's really important, A, to think about how you cater the CCP. And by the way, this is me talking as a pure capitalist. I'm not talking about where my head is at right now in all of this. But if you're just a capitalist, you got to think about CCP selling, but then you also have to think about protecting the CCP from their own populace, having some sort of throwback to them supporting this movie. So you have to think about two places where you're selling. One is the CCP, and then the next is the consumer, and trying to shield both from any sort of conflict. And we're seeing Milan right now falling into some of that problem. Sure. And what do you think of Milan, uh, since it's just been released and it's received a lot of controversy? Milan, I, I mean, I, I'm friends with a lot of the producers that were involved with it. I was involved in initial conversations way back when that first started. 
I was always very nervous about that idea because one thing about Disney is they have amazing Western IP that they own and have cultivated over the years. And if they just simply make great movies out of it, um, the Chinese have tended to welcome that in the market and allow Disney to monetize it. Even with the Shanghai Park, um, that is a Disney IP generated park with some Chinese characteristics that make it relevant to the Chinese. But they didn't just create a bunch of Chinese IP and then create a park around that. Um, it's Western IP, and the park has been Chinified a bit. Um, I think Mulan was a very difficult challenge to thread the needle on because they were taking something that was very iconic to China, a story that has been told many, many times by the Chinese, and said, hey, as an American Hollywood studio, we're going to create a new version of your iconic legend mythology, and we're going to do it Disney style. And to me, that's a very difficult place to tread because you're sort of, I mean, people have asked me, well, what do you mean by that? And I'm going, well, imagine if Wanda Studios and a Chinese director and Chinese writers decided to make a movie about Abraham Lincoln for the American public or the Revolutionary War for Americans. Would we embrace that movie in a way that they think we would? I don't think so. And I think it's sort of the way we expected China to embrace Mulan. Now, I could be wrong. We might find out this weekend that it made a hundred something million opening weekend. But my guess is it's going to have a hard time getting to a hundred million and it might be quite a bit less than that. And that wasn't the original goal. They wanted a huge blockbuster for that, that market. It's interesting because it's also a genre in which, right, it's not just the historical IP, but it's also the kind of Kung Fu combat movie that China has a rich history of making. And so they're not, it's, it's tough to compete in that space, I'm sure. Um, well, it's interesting if you're, if you're there on the ground and you just throw on any given channel in your hotel room, you will see plenty of movies that almost look like Mulan um, that are Chinese made and, and, and Chinese financed and for the Chinese. So there's an argument that even Mulan in its $200 million Americanized version has a lot of look and feel to it that they've seen many, many times before. Sure, sure. You mentioned Wanda Group, um, which poses the other side of this question, and that's Chinese exports coming to the U.S., where we've seen Wanda Group um, have holdings of AMC, where they've been bringing in Chinese films, which you know, are still showing at off hours and are subtitled not necessarily as well. Um, but there's a growing presence of Chinese cinema in the U.S. Do you think that there's an opportunity for a kind of film diplomacy there? Or do you think that that's just, again, purely capitalist? Well, I mean, there's there's two reasons that for that. I mean, when Wanda, when Wang Jinlin, the, the chairman, the boisterous sort of hubris-filled chairman of Wanda, um, was trying to avoid the scrutiny of the Bo Lai scandal way back in, I think it was 2012, he sort of promised the CCP that he would use his financial might to buy iconic Western assets. And 
And one of those was obviously AMC and, and ultimately Carmike, which allowed him the largest reach of theaters in the United States of America and something that he was able to tout to the CCP where he had plenty of detractors that he now had control of this massive ability to propagandize the US. Now, as we know, you can put all Chinese movies in AMC theaters all day long, you're not going to get a big audience checking them out. So I think part of what that idea was, was symbolic um, in regards to having the CCP supporting him at a time where he did have lots of detractors and he continues to do so. He's not um, in in the best position politically anymore over there. Um, and then on top of the actual sort of political ramifications of what he was trying to do, the actual um, you know proliferation of propaganda here in the U.S. Does there is there a potential for that, or is there a potential of of that being a film diplomacy vehicle for the Chinese with their Chinese movies here? I would say possibly outside of their pure Chinese population that's here in in the U.S. You might have some interest from. American-born Chinese that want to see films or ingratiate themselves into that culture in a way that they can do here rather than being on the ground in China. You might have um, China experts or Chinese, you know, people in the world of academia around China be interested in those movies. But I doubt we're going to see much of, uh, you know, a normal American public going to those movies outside of a handful of really special. Um, aberrations, like for instance, a new Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which was made by a Taiwanese filmmaker, but something in that realm where people are like, wow, you've never seen anything like this. We have to go see it. And that might be that opportunity, but that's also something that only happens once every, I don't know, 15 years. I think it's going to happen more frequently, especially with the rise of Chinese co-productions. You know, it it might because I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard the eight hundred is a fantastic film to watch. Um, so now that they have reached close to the heights of what we do here in Hollywood as best in class film industry content, we might see more and more of these really high end, high production value um, stories told in Chinese by the Chinese industry that resonate with a decent amount of the population in the West. All right, Chris. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, My final question is, what's next for you? What do you have coming down the pipe? Well, it's a great question. I mean, right now, I have devoted myself to being a squeaky wheel with a challenge that's facing the United States that I think has real solutions. I'm not in the business of calling people out unless I can give them a path forward or at least ideas to to address what I think is a difficult challenge facing America. Um, so I am trying right now to bring more people into that squeaky wheel space so that we can talk more about it and devise action plans to address it moving forward. Because I have two kids that are 13 years old, as you read in the book, um, they're very important to me, as is my wife. And I don't want a Cold War environment engulfing um, their young adulthood as they, they come up, um, you know, as American citizens. I remember that with the USSR, and that was not a pleasant time in American history. Um, I think 
we can get enough squeaky wheels and put enough attention on this with the public to create the pressure that makes C-suite executives want to band together and address it. If that doesn't happen, I'm also working with members of the China Task Force in Congress, and I'm trying to stay very nonpartisan in regards to the upcoming election so that I can be involved on the government side of this dynamic. I'd like to see the problem addressed from the private side, but it might have to be a private-public sort of partnership in order to get it done. And quite frankly, it might be the only way to get it done because the full weight of the nation is going to have to be there. Um, in regards to business around that, I am being extremely um, diligent about bringing to light uh, my memoir in, in a television series. So I'm with an agency out here called United Talent Agency and working on um, the adaptation of an inspired by version of that. Um, I'm also working with a few executives in regards to how to possibly collaborate with China, with Hollywood movies that don't infringe on the things that are important to us um, as Americans. And I think there is a uh, a needle to thread there that can work for both sides and also allow us to monetize that very important market. And then on top of it, I'm doing the, the lecture series and various consulting and, av and advisor work. So it's, it's a lot of fun. It's an amazing sort of space to be in right now, given all the attention on it. Um, I highly recommend any of your listeners to go on my Twitter, which is relatively new, but it's gained followers rather quickly. Um, it's at the Dragon Feeder. And I would absolutely love a lot of your listeners to um, go out and, and, and buy the book and read it because there's a lot of word to spread from that that I think will help the cause. And then on top of it, some of your younger listeners, I really walk through how I got into the business and how I got to where I am and how it doesn't just happen purely from this massive you know strategy you had coming out of college or coming out of law school. A lot of it is is luck and keeping your eyes open for opportunity and taking your lumps and your failures and trying to find some success in there too. And, and I think it's a fun life story that, that a lot of your listeners will engage in and find really helpful as they embark on this very surreal and, and quite challenging world that we all live in. Absolutely. It's amazing how much you learn just from your experience waiting tables at the Olive Garden and how much that shaped that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, those were those were interesting days and I think they were important to bring in there because I, I I feel like a lot of times when I see what I consider an expert talk about something, you just expect some sort of rarefied air, oh, I could never get there, or they have some sort of superhero powers or something. But the fact is we all started in the same spot and you know, you just gotta live life hard and and find some sweet spots where there's opportunities and, you know, some of them pay off and some of them don't, but you just got to keep riding life in the way that, um, you know, makes it interesting and colorful and allows you to have amazing experiences and, and, you know, hopefully gets you to, to a point where you're doing something that you find really a source of pride and something where you can actually make a difference. And, and I lucked into that and, and I'm really happy that people are reading about it, and I'm hoping it makes a difference. That's fantastic. Chris, thanks again for joining me. It was a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely my pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having me on, and thank you, everybody, for listening.